John chapter 8. I think all of us would agree that was an abundantly appropriate hymn for worship in light of celebration of the little ones God's given to your lives there. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So last week, my, uh, my wife's home church in Indiana was celebrating their 60th anniversary. So if you wondered where I was or where we were last week, we were in uh, Muncie, Indiana, celebrating with those sweet folks there. And uh, it was a sobering moment when the pastor asked everyone that had started to come to church in the 60s and 70s to please stand. And uh, my wife stood. And then she sat back down and she said, there's not a lot of people that stood for pre-60s or 60s and 70s. And uh, I said, that kind of makes us kind of old, doesn't it? (laughs) And it didn't seem all that long ago, but I think you started going there when you were a baby. And uh, so it's good to be there. And uh, thanks for um, allowing us that time to do that. Um, it's the first Sunday I've missed all year. Uh, don't look to miss anymore except for next Sunday. I know Pastor Steve announced that last week, but um, we have an opportunity to preach another church's celebration in just outside of Fargo, North Dakota next Sunday. So please pray there's no blizzards, late uh, spring blizzards in Fargo. I would appreciate that. You're welcome to pray for extremely warm weather if you'd like. Um, But we'll be there next Sunday, but you have to put up with me for quite a few Sundays after that for a while. Um, But anyways, uh, John chapter 8. I wanted to, um, some of you have asked of late, just a handful, so I just thought it would be good to to address. When I make a comment at the end of a maybe a little bit longer worship service than typical, uh, where I say I apologize for going a little bit over time, and some of you just, I know, don't really mind going along at all, and I, and I appreciate that. But we actually have this little two-page article that we wrote that we adopted into our church constitution back in 2002. And uh, this little two-page article is called The Declaration of Intent. And I thought I would just read, um, it's a very short paragraph, um, why I say I'm sorry when things go over. (laughs) Um, I I wish I could say the first reason I say I'm sorry when things go over is because of the Declaration of Intent, but I'm really thinking about our poor nursery workers (laughs) who are with these kids for a really long period of time. Those, Those are the real heroes in ministry, we all know that. But the the, the Declaration of Intent actually says, we believe that the most effective church service will be a reasonable length, that the object of the preliminaries would be to prepare hearts for the sermon, that the preaching will be well prepared, and when an invitation is given, it will be conducted without extended pleadings. And then it says, this church shall seek to fill its leadership positions from its own congregational members. And then it continues. Uh, I would encourage you that when you have an opportunity to contact the church office, maybe you have a a copy of this in your home. I think this is good for everyone who calls Grace Church 
their home church to read through this once a year. It's a great reminder for theology, philosophy, and practice of who we are as a church family, and I think it's, uh, it's very necessary uh, to do that. Okay? All right, John chapter 8. Would you take your hymnals, your red hymnals, the larger red hymnals? I would like to do something just a cappella this morning in further preparation of our hearts for the sermon number 157. If any of you in the second row across the front have extra hymnals to hand to people in the first row, uh, please do so. You may not need it. It's a familiar hymn. I just want to sing verses 1 and 3 in preparation for this morning's sermon from John chapter 8. Sing meditatively together verses 1 and 3. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt, yonder on Calvary's mount of glory, there with the blood of the Lamb was chapter 8, I'll read from Romans chapter 5, verse 20 and 21. It says, the law came 
so that transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, friends, the Bible identifies, defines, and speaks of the consequences of sin, to be sure. But grace in the scriptures is always pronounced more powerful and influential than even the most vile of sin. Sin never has power over grace, but grace always dominates sin. You remember the story of Noah? Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5 says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things, to the birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor. He found grace in the eyes of the Lord. That's probably the most strong, adversative in all of Scripture. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This was the situation on earth as God commanded Noah to commence building the ark. Most reasonable historians tell us and theologians that it took him about 75, at the most 100 years, to build her. So think of this. Pretty much, the whole earth is in a dumpster fire of sin. But Noah found grace in God's eyes, and Noah is the son of righteousness who preaches the grace of repentance. And faith, both requirements of God and any dispensation of time. And he's preaching for almost a hundred years while he's building the ark. Sin is a big deal, but God, for about a hundred years, allows scores and scores of souls to hear of the opportunity to receive God's even more manifold provision of grace. If they but just turn from their sin and received this grace, these could have entered the ark of safety and been saved from the global deadly flood waters that were to come. God's gracious, God's merciful. He's long suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So even in the earth's darkest hour of sin, grace and forgiveness remained a greater opportunity. What is grace? Many of you know this definition. It's unmerited favor from heaven. Something offered to us that we don't deserve. So keep this definition in mind as I read another text from Romans, verses 23, Romans 3, verses 23 to 25. For all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace to the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, 
He passed over the sins previously committed. So again, Paul tells us sin is a big deal. But grace in Christ is a bigger deal. You're familiar with Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 4 through 9, which says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love, which he has loved us, even when we were dead and our transgressions made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one would boast. I suppose sin and grace have been somewhat of a hard concept to wrap our hearts around in today's world because pulpits and churches have chosen to avoid either subject. So often churches don't understand the balance of their usage even in scripture and let alone their application to existence of life. Some churches are really big on grace and small on sin. They teach grace, 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 and pretty much nothing on sin. These are assemblies where the world is invited into the church and feels right at home being there. And then there's some churches that are always big on sin, and they preach on sin, 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 and they're quite small on grace. These are the assemblies where active and passive legalists thrive. Active legalists are those who actually teach you are saved by being a, a do-gooder. You're saved by doing good works. You obey, do the right things, act the part, and your works will save you. The passive legalists, as I call them, well, they might not teach salvation by good works, but they sure measure your spiritual maturity and sanctification by how religious rules or are obeyed or not in your life. There's not much grace discussed in the environment of the legalist, either active or passive. Both sin and grace must be taught as much and how the Bible teaches them. And when the fullness of both are taught, we will all know then that where sin abounds, grace in Christ does much more abound. And understanding these things, we find ourselves to our text in John chapter 8. Let's read the first 11 verses together. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law of Moses, we're commanded to stone such a woman. What then do you say? They were saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down with his finger, wrote on the ground, but when they persisted 
and asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. When they had heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones, and he was left alone. And the woman, where she was, in the center of the court, straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go. From now on, sin no more. We left chapter 7 with Pastor Mike's sermon last week, still celebrating the Feast of the Tabernacles. There are three feasts, all Jewish males, 21 and older, must attend in Jerusalem. Three major feasts, Pentecost, Passover, and of course, the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus is still in the city obeying the law of Moses in this regard. It was the habit of Jesus to retreat to either Bethany to stay with his family and friends for overnight until the next day of celebration, or he would go to the Mount of Olives and pitch a tent and sleep there overnight in retreat style with his disciples, and then re-enter the city to teach and to celebrate. The text tells us that the next day after he had stayed overnight with his disciples on the Mount of Olives, it was his habit as a rabbi to go to the temple and take a seat and teach. And that was literally the picture. Jesus came in, he sat down, which was the habit of rabbis, and everybody else stood. Let's try that some Sunday. (laughs) I'm just kidding, I'm no rabbi. (laughs) I'm assuming Jesus was most likely gathering the largest crowds around him compared to the other rabbis, and that was for... Obvious reasons we know we've already preached on in John. But with murderous intentions again in their hearts and accusatory intentions, intentions, the Jewish leaders again seek to set Jesus in a trap. And so explained in these verses, especially verses three to six, the trap is set and we understand now how Jesus faced it. They rush a woman into the center of the temple gathering She'd been caught in the act of adultery. Now in Jewish law, if you were even engaged to be married and were caught with another man, not your fiance, it was considered just as adulterous as if a gal was married. Unfortunately, from what we understand from history, there's nothing new under the sun and it would have been considered probable that during an excited celebrations of the Feast of Tabernacle, especially with people who gather who hadn't seen themselves for a long time. It was no surprise to at times find people acting in adulterous ways. Regardless, this is a setup to trick Jesus. And there's a number of factors that need to be understood as we unpack this passage together. The woman was most likely known as an adulteress. But ladies, maybe you've already thought this many times if you've, as you've read this passage, and if you didn't, you were probably thinking it this morning. Who did you notice was missing from the context? 
all the girls always notice that first. Where's the guy? It's a very appropriate question to ask, actually. This is just one proof of a setup, not just to shame the woman, but to trick Jesus. But Jesus, who is the fulfillment of the law, is not deceived. He knows the hearts of the scribes and the Pharisees, and he knows the law. If we need to go over with me, hold your finger here to Deuteronomy chapter 22 real quickly this morning. Let's read beginning in verse 22. Deuteronomy 22, and let's read verses 22 to 24. And what's fascinating is the scribes and Pharisees would have been very familiar with this text, but in a hurried sense, seeking to push Jesus for a quick answer, seeking for him to slip up and be tricked, Right? They try to force an answer from him about this woman, but, well, Jesus knows. Moses taught, if a man is found lying with a married woman, then both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman, thus you shall purge the evil from Israel. But then he clarifies, if there is a girl who is a virgin engaged to a man, and another man finds her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of the city, and you shall stone them to death. The girl, because she did not cry out in the city, and the man, because he has violated his neighbor's wife. Thus you shall purge the evil from among you. Those are sobering words. In the dispensation of grace, the church... We know that those civil aspects of Mosaic law have been abolished. Thank goodness. <laughs> but nonetheless, that's the way the reality in the Mosaic community is. You go back to John chapter 8 now. We find out that both married and or engaged men and women should have been brought to the public for punishment. But here just stood the woman. There's more here that just doesn't even match up. For Jesus and his perfect understanding of the Mosaic law. The legalistic leaders knew they were setting a trap when they asked Jesus, What do you say? If Jesus answers, Stone her, he not only violates the law of Moses because the man is not there with her and the eyewitnesses are absent. He also sets himself at odds with the Roman government underneath whose domination the Jewish community now abides. And they had laws against such public punishment. And in addition, he's no longer known as the meek, mild, and forgiving son of God to those who had seen him tenderly heal and lovingly save many from their sin. The leaders would just keep pressing Jesus to give an answer over and over and over again. Before we get to Jesus' answer to the persistent questioning and pressuring of the religious legalists, I think it would be appropriate for us to consider the wicked position and disposition of the scribes and Pharisees. Because this is, either, this is always true of an active or passive legalist or maybe even a professing believer who's what I call legalistic-like. 
or like a legalist. Think about what these unsaved religious leaders did. They put this woman alone, and I think the grammar here is very much on purpose, in the center of all who gathered. They didn't bring her up to the front row. They didn't bring her in the back door and shout from the back of the room. They didn't even really bring her up on stage by Jesus. They brought her into the middle. So all could gather around so that she could be disgraced. Legalism not only seeks to shame and disgrace, it also seeks to deceive on false authority. What I mean is this, legalism puts unrealistic expectations upon others through a false or intentional misguided understanding or teaching of the word. And friends, please go back to the sermon and write that sentence down. Legalism will put in self in an untouchable position while making everyone else feel inadequate as if they can never match up to the standard that the legalist has. And yet the stand of the legalist is absolutely untenable. The legalist doesn't mind the attention that he gets as he shames. Let's not ever forget that either. The legalists must be seen and they must be heard. Jesus doesn't even get a fair shake in offering an appropriate answer. When asked this question, what do you say? While the primary focus remains on the legalist, the guilty gets the second amount of the most of the attention. Where's God in their hearts with the Son of God sitting in their midst? While doing these things, the legalist is just hiding their own sin while seeking to expose the sin of others. Jesus knew these things to be true. And what did he do? He just stooped down with his finger and wrote to the ground. This is a striking and unfamiliar reaction of a rabbi to the unreasonable question posed by the legalists. What would Jesus be writing in the dirt, you probably think? Well, there's been a lot of speculation to this. So let's have a, maybe a sanctified imagination and consider a few things together this morning. D.A. Carson in his commentary tells us that T.W. Mason thinks Jesus would have been following the habit of Roman magistrates who first wrote down their sentence before they would stand and have it read publicly. Other historians and Old Testament theologians think that he was probably writing Jeremiah 17, 13 in the dirt, which says those who turn away from you will be written in the dust. 
because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. Some have just suggested that Jesus wrote Exodus 23.1, do not help a wicked man by being a malicious witness. Others say, Exodus 23.7, having nothing to do, have nothing to do with a false charge. Do not put an innocent or honest person to death, for I will not acquit the guilty. Did you know that there's only one other time in the whole Bible where the divine finger of God is used to write something else? John is presenting Jesus as the Son of God, the great I Am, the Logos, who's existed with God in all his glory and eternity past. And Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy 5 tells us that the, the Ten Commandments were engraved in stone by the finger of God. Out of all of the sanctified imaginative thoughts that may have been going on here, I believe this one most be, might, might be the most objective. Could it be that the first time Jesus stoops down and writes, the legalists recall Moses describing the finger of God engraving in stone the Ten Commandments and associate Moses' writing with what Jesus is doing? The first time Jesus kneels down, could he be writing the first five commandments which refer to man's sinful offenses against God? The second time he kneels to write in the dirt, could it be that he writes out the second half of the Ten Commandments which reveal how man has sinned against man? In the writing of the moral code of God by the finger of God and possibly even the Son of God here, all standing around the woman who was in the center, caught in adultery, stand guilty themselves, including the scribes and the Pharisees. Ultimately, we really don't know what Jesus wrote in the dirt. Some believe he just dabbled in the dirt to give the very clear impression that their question was an illegitimate question. It was not a question about law at all. Nonetheless, the religious ones kept persisting and pushing Jesus and asking him what should be done to the woman. So Jesus stood up and he says that famous statement in verse 7. He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, Jesus knew what the law said. As we stated earlier, the eyewitnesses who caught the woman were not even there. Deuteronomy 13.9, Deuteronomy 17.7, and Leviticus 24, verse 14, teach only the eyewitnesses to the adultery could cast the first stones at the adulterous couple, not individual. Many historians believe that the man not present was probably directly involved in the conspiracy. That he was friends with the scribes and Pharisees and the scribes and Pharisees could even convince him to participate in this adulterous act so that the woman could be shamed and Jesus could be trapped. 
Well, it is good for us to remember that Jesus had even expounded on the moral code of Moses, which said, thou shalt not commit adultery. By saying, if a man even looks upon a woman and lusts after her, he's committed adultery in his heart already. So when Jesus stands and maybe even walks around and picks up a stone or two and places it in the hand of the scribe or Pharisee, They know what he's asking. Christ's statement would have pricked their conscience. With one statement, my friends, Jesus takes all of the attention off the woman in the center of the gathering and puts it on the conscience of the legalist standing, shaming the woman while seeking to trick him. You know, the older you get, the more sin your head and your mind is able to remember. So it's no wonder that our text says that all began leaving, beginning with the older ones. John records for us two kinds of responses of conscience in this passage. The convicted but unrepented quietly leave in shame after seeking to shame. And the woman they sought to shame remains with a conscience convicted and ready to repent. When you're without Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, right before you're ready to respond in one of these two ways. You must consider who Jesus is and what he said. As the woman stood motionless in the same place to which she was brought, and with all the religious leaders, and some believe even all of the bystanders gone too, like the, Jesus, has, Jesus has emptied the temple of hundreds of people by telling them one thing, Think about this. Jesus, seated as rabbi, is alone with the woman who's still in the middle. He says, woman, by the way, in this culture, a term of great respect. Please remember that. My dear friend, Dear lady, created in the image of God, woman, where'd they all go? Where are the legalists? Did they not condemn you? By asking this question, Jesus is clarifying that the ones who sought to condemn her are in no position to do so. Only the father of the one who stood before her could condemn. But Jesus stands as the mediator between God and man ready to forgive 
and save. She says, no one, Lord. By the way, another term of reverence and respect. To the religious legalist, Jesus is just a rabbi. Another quality teacher. To the convicted and ready to repent woman caught in adultery, Rabbi Jesus is Lord to her. Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, don't sin anymore. You see, friends, sin is a big deal in this story, but grace is an even bigger deal. This is the moment that this woman, I believe, is born again. And she leaves a changed person. What a testimony of grace. She would live on to model for the rest of the week of the Feast of Tabernacles and as she heads back home to her people in her hometown. In one sober moment during the end of the week of the Feast of Tabernacles, the Bible teaches us how the justice of God and the mercy of God kiss each other. To the legalist, there's only justice. And skewed justice at that. To the pragmatist, where only grace is, there's just mercy, mercy, mercy. But God is just. He must punish sin. And God is merciful and full of compassion. What a theological moment for all of us here to see and understand. God is eternally just and eternally merciful at the same time. Both attributes of his goodness must be satisfied when it comes to us as fallen human beings and our own sin. How? Well, justice and mercy embrace in the person of Jesus Christ. Because of texts like 2 Corinthians 5.21, for God made Jesus to be sin for you. In order that you might be made the righteousness of God in Jesus. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Remember what Jesus said in John 3, 17? For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. That the world through him might be saved. I really hope a congregation like ours by now would at least look upon the world as Jesus did when he arrived with pity, with grace, but not hatred, vindictiveness, divisiveness, name-calling. Remember the story of the ten lepers in Luke 17? Ten were healed and only one came back to give thanks. And what does Jesus tell that one? Go, your faith has made you whole. 
This woman caught in adultery is so similar to the one thankful leper. Consider this, my friends. Whether caught in sin or suffering from the effects of sin in the body as a leper, Jesus came to forgive, offer grace, and not condemn. It doesn't matter what size your sin or what kind of sin. No sin is too large or dark that it cannot be forgiven. Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, Jesus quotes the prophet Isaiah, and Jesus speaks Isaiah's words of himself. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recover the sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable, favorable year of the Lord. Jesus gave the book, Luke says, back to the attendant, and then he sat down again. They were all fixed on Jesus. And while being spellbound on him, Jesus says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Do you remember Luke 15? When Jesus is found by the scribes and Pharisees, to be having a bite to eat with publicans and sinners. And they condemn him again. My friends, you could not give a better compliment to Jesus than being found with publicans and sinners. That's why he came. To forgive their sins. If you'll take your hymnals again, your red hymnals, to number 177. Ben is going to come and lead us as Jacob softly plays. And let's just remember what a friend of sinners Jesus is. And if you're here this morning and you don't know him, Maybe you stand as an enemy of God in the middle of the court. But Jesus is the mediator of God for you. And he offers forgiveness for you. Maybe while you're singing, you could turn from your sin as this woman did and place your faith in, in the Lord. The Lord Jesus and his peace knows forgiveness and you could leave today and go and sin no more if you have more questions about that maybe after the service you can come and find me or maybe talk to the person who brought you could probably explain Jesus the best to you and how he's changed their life I plead with you please don't continue to come hear of him and not know him.